Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast of legends. We're talking about chapter 77. Philip is a is really living his best life. That was sarcasm. And piggybacking off Intrepid's comment, no one has said that it isn't believable that the character Philip is doing these things. It's worth looking back to see how the author accomplished this. Swim said the Mama Fishy seems to agree. There are two reasons why we find Philip believable. One is based on the author's craftsmanship, and the other is based on that it resonates with our own personal experiences with relationships, at least mine. M's craftsmanship, I found this great article that thoroughly discusses of human bondage. First of all, the title sets up what the book is about. The author took the title of his novel from the fourth part of Ethics of Human Bondage or the Strength of Emotions by Spinoza. He was impressed by Spinoza's assertion that we are in bondage in so far as what happens to us is determined by internal laws and external circumstances and that we are free in as much as we are self-determined. And specific to Philip Mildred dynamic, he sets it up by the following. In the novel, the author carefully prepares readers for Philip's bondage of passion, principally through Philip's relationship with Miss Wilkinson and Fanny Price and the bondage of passion that these individuals have to Philip. There is incompatibility in their relationship. They're caring more for him and being bound by passion to him while he remains more detached and aloof, the reverse of the relationship between him and Mildred. These relationships foreshadow Philip's subsequent bondage to Mildred. Later in the knowledge novel, the character of Ruth Chalice also anticipates Mildred, who is equally free with her affections and to whom Philip will have a hopeless bondage of passion. That is to say, the author's treatment of the relationship between men and women in the early chapters has already made preparation of Philip Mildred's relationship. In each, he gives the considerable attention to the imbalance of the relationship. Love is always one-sided. It is the one who cares the most, who is ultimately the one victimized. Ah, my leg's itchy. Here is the article citation, but if you look it up and download, be aware of the spoiler. My own experiences. Here's um, the experiences of Swims to the Mum Fishy. So many times in these Philip Mildred chapters, I have that there, but for the grace of God I go. Sorry, there, but for the grace of God go I. Feeling. To illustrate by one example, I entrapped myself once in a relationship where literally a guy sitting at the next table in an airport restaurant after the BF left for the restroom said to me, it's not you, that guy is an asshole. And I still didn't break it off. I grew up, i.e. grow a pair, until three months later. So, so many red flags that I just ignored. Philip, in many ways, Samoy, I feel his pain. Oh, we've all done silly things in the past. We've all been in silly relationships that an outsider could look at you and go, don't do that. But, oh, my knee is so itchy. Um, but, that's life. Adrathea said, Philip is living his best life just like Cronshaw. I hope this night doesn't become the beginning of a drinking habit for Philip. Philip and Mildred have been using one another. Philip buys Mildred's affection with gifts, while Mildred buys gifts with fake affection. In this chapter, the author compares their transactional relationship to sex work. The prostitute that Philip engages accepts his invitation to dinner using Mildred's favourite phase phrase, I don't mind. I think slash hope this experience shows Philip that he and Mildred will never develop a relationship based on mutual affection 
Also, the author's skill as a writer holds me in my own bondage to this book. I want to set the book aside because the character's relationship is so bad, but I pick the book back up again because the writing is so good. Wow. Intrepa said this, I believe the word you were looking for yesterday was self-flagellation. And uh, yes, indeed it was. Thank you for that, Intrepa. Swims at the moment, Fishy's comment above is excellent. I would also add that the author crafted Philip's life in such a way that he doesn't have any close friends or family to take his Mildred troubles to. If he had, they probably would have staged some sort of intervention and that would have complicated things in the story. As it is, the storyline is very clean and neat and focused on the author's intent. Part of what makes it believable is the step-by-step descent that the character makes. I don't think we would have bought Philip paying for Mildred and Emil to go up together, but by the time we get to Griffith's, Philip is so utterly lost that we'd accept anything. At this point, his self-esteem is non-existent, and all that is left is mangled, distorted ego. Oh, and yeah, he got drink drunk. Drink drunk. Whew. Words. Um, we were slowly set up to see Philip enjoy, or not enjoy, but, um, I don't know, with a strange compulsion to self-torture and self-flagellation like earlier in the book when he when he would um you know pray for forgiveness and i think he would pinch himself or hurt himself something like that thinking that that was some kind of penance to god and that's kind of carried through he still likes to punish himself he it's almost like he feels like the more he punishes himself the the more good karma he's going to get in the future maybe something like that i don't know I don't know how these things bloody work. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? To the next chapter, chapter 78. And that one goes like this. Excuse me while I yawn. At last, Monday came and Philip thought his long torture was over. Looking out the trains, he found that the latest by which Griffiths could reach home that night left Oxford soon after one, and he supposed that Mildred would take one, which started a few minutes later to bring her to London. His desire was to go and meet it, but he thought Mildred would like to be left alone for a day. Perhaps she would drop him a line in the evening to say she was back, but if not, he would call at her lodgings next morning. His spirit was cowed. Cowed. Out, meaning to submit one's wishes by intimidation. He felt a bitter hatred for Griffiths, and for, but for Mildred, notwithstanding all that had passed, only a heart-rending desire. He was glad now that Hayward was not in London on Saturday afternoon when, distraught, he went in search of human comfort. He could not have prevented himself from telling him everything, and Hayward would have been astonished at his weakness. He would despise him and perhaps be shocked or disgusted that he could envisage the possibility of making Mildred his mistress after she had given herself to another man. What did he care? Two other men. What did he care if it was shocking or disgusting? He was ready for any compromise, prepared for more degrading humiliation still if he could only gratify his desire. Towards the evening, his steps took him against his will to the house in which she lived and he looked up at her window. It was dark. He did not venture to ask if she was back. He was confident in her promise, but there was no letter from her in the morning. And when, about midday, he called, the maid told him she had not arrived. He could not understand it. 
He knew that Griffiths would have been obliged to go home the day before, for he was to be best man at a wedding, and Mildred had no money. He turned over in his mind every possible thing that might have happened. He went again in the afternoon and left a note, asking her to dine with him that evening, as calmly as though the events of the last fortnight had not happened. He mentioned the place and time at which they were to meet, and hoping against hope, kept the appointment, though he waited for an hour, she did not come. On Wednesday morning he was ashamed to ask at the house and sent a messenger boy with a letter and instructions to bring back a reply, but in an hour the boy came back with Philip's letter unopened and the answer that the lady had not returned from the country. Philip was beside himself. The last deception was more than he could bear. He repeated to himself over and over again that he loathed Mildred, and ascribing to Griffiths this new disappointment he hated him so much that he knew what was the delight of murder. He walked about considering what a joy it would be to come upon him in the dark night and stick a knife in his throat, just about the carotid artery, artery, carotid artery, that's what I meant to say, and leave him to die in the street like a dog. Philip was out of his senses with grief and rage. He did not like whiskey, but he drank to stupefy himself. He went to bed drunk on the Tuesday and on the Wednesday night. On Thursday morning... He got up very late and dragged himself bleary-eyed and sallow into his sitting room to see if there were any letters. A curious feeling shot through his heart when he recognised the handwriting of Griffiths. Dear old man, I hardly know how to write to you, and yet I feel I must write. I hope you're not awfully angry with me. I know I oughtn't have gone away with Millie, but I simply couldn't help myself. She simply carried me off my feet, and I would have done anything to get her. When she told me you had offered us the money to go, I simply couldn't resist. And now it's all over. I'm awfully ashamed of myself, and I wish I hadn't been such a fool. I wish you'd write and say you're not angry with me, and I wanted you to let me come and see you. I was awfully hurt at you telling Millie you didn't want to see me. Do write me a line, there's a good chap, and tell me you forgive me. It'll ease my conscience. I thought you wouldn't mind, or you wouldn't have offered the money. But I know I oughtn't to have taken it. I came home on Monday, and Millie wanted to stay a couple of days at Oxford by herself. She's going back to London London, London on Wednesday. So by the time you receive this letter, you'll have seen her, and I hope everything will go off all right. Do write and say you forgive me. Please write at once. Yours ever, Harry. Philip tore up the letter furiously. He did not mean to answer it. He despised Griffiths for his apologies. He had no patience with his prickings of conscience. One could do a dastardly thing, if he chose, but it was contemptible to regret it afterwards. He thought the letter cowardly and hypocritical. He was disgusted at its sentimentality. It would be very easy if you could again do a beastly thing, he muttered to himself, and then say you were sorry, and that put it all right again. He hoped with all his heart he would have the chance one day to Griffiths to do Griffiths a bad turn. But at all events he knew that Mildred was in town. He dressed hurriedly, not waiting to shave, drank a cup of tea and took a cab to her rooms. The cab seemed to crawl. He was painfully anxious to see her and, unconsciously, he uttered a prayer to the God he did not believe in to make her receive him kindly. He only wanted to forget. With beating heart he rang the bell. He forgot all his suffering in the passionate desire to enfold her once more in his arms. Is Mrs. Miller in? he asked joyously. She's gone, the maid answered. He looked at her blankly. She came about an hour ago and took away her things. For a moment he did not know what to say. Did you give her my letter? Did she say where she was going? Then he understood that Mildred had deceived him again. She was not coming back to him. 
he made an effort to save his face. Oh, well, I dare say I shall hear from her. She may have sent a letter to another address. He turned away and went back hopeless to his rooms. He might have known that she would do this. She had never cared for him. She had made a fool of him from the beginning. She had no pity. She had no kindness. She had no charity. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> the only thing was to accept the inevitable. The pain he was suffering was horrible. He would sooner be dead than endure it. And the thought came to him that it would be better to finish with the whole thing. He might throw himself in the river or put his neck on a railway line, but he had no sooner set the thought into words than he rebelled against it. His reason told him that he would get over his unhappiness in time if he tried with all his might to forget her, and it would be grotesque to kill himself on account of a vulgar slut. He had only one life, and it was madness to fling it away. He felt that he would never overcome his passion, but he knew that, after all, it was only a matter of time. He would not stay in London. London, There, everything reminded him of his unhappiness. He telegraphed to his uncle that he was coming to Blackstable, and hurrying to pack, took the first train he could. He wanted to get away excuse me, from the sordid rooms in which he had endured so much suffering. He wanted to breathe clean air. He ha was disgusted with himself. He felt that he was a little mad. Since he was grown up, Philip had been given the best spare room in the vicarage. It was a corner room, and in the front of one window was an old tree which blocked the view. But from the other you saw beyond the garden and the vicarage field of broad meadows, Philip remembered the wallpaper from his earliest years, on the wall were quaint watercolours of the early Victorian period by a friend of the vicar's youth. They had a faded charm. The dressing table was surrounded by stiff muslin. There was an old tall boy to put your clothes in. Philip gave a sigh of pleasure. He had never realised that all those things meant anything to him at all. At the vicarage, life went on as it had always done. No piece of furniture had been moved from one place to another. The vicar ate the same things, said the same things, went for the same walk every day. He had grown a little fatter, a little more silent, a little more narrow. He had become accustomed to living without his wife and missed her very little. He bickered still with Josiah Graves. Philip went to see the church warden. He was a little thinner, a little whiter, a little more austere. He was autocratic still and still disapproved of candles on the altar. The shops had still a pleasant quaintness, and Philip stood in front of that in which things useful to seamen were sold, sea boots and tarpaulins and tackle. He remembered that he had felt there in his childhood the thrill of the sea and the adventurous magic of the unknown. He could not help his heart beating at each double knock of the postman in case there might be a letter from Mildred sent on by his landlady in London, but he knew that there would be none. Now that he could think it out more calmly, he understood that in trying to force Mildred to love him, he had been attempting the impossible. He did not know what it was that passed from a man to a woman, from a woman to a man, and made one of them a slave. It was a convenient to call it sexual instinct, but it was no more than that. He did not understand why it should occasion so vehement an attraction to one person rather than another. It was irresistible. The mind could not battle with it. Friendship, gratitude, interest had no power beside it. Because he had not attracted Mildred sexually, nothing he did had any effect upon her. The idea revolted him. It made human nature beastly, and he felt suddenly that the hearts of men were full of dark places.
places because Mildred was indifferent to him. He had thought her sexless, her anemic appearance and thin lips, the body with its narrow hips and flat chest, the languor of her manner, carried out his supposition, and yet she was capable of sudden passions which made her willing to risk everything to gratify him. He had never understood her adventure with Emil Miller. It had seemed so unlike her, and she had never been able to explain it. But now that he had seen her with Griffiths, he knew that just the same thing had happened then. She had been carried off her feet by an ungovernable desire. He tried to think out what those two men had, which so strangely attracted her. They both had a vulgar fastidiousness, which tickled her simple sense of humour, and a certain coarseness of nature, but what took her perhaps was the blatant sexuality, which was their most marked characteristic. She had a genteel refinement which shuddered at the facts of life. She looked upon the bodily functions as indecent. She had all sorts of euphemisms and for common objects. She always chose an elaborate word as more becoming than a simple one. The brutality of these men was like a whip on her thin white shoulders, and she shuddered with voluptuous pain. One thing Philip had made up his mind about, he would not go back to the lodgings in which he had suffered. He wrote to his landlady and gave her notice. He wanted to have his own things about him. He determined to take unfurnished rooms. It would be pleasant and cheaper, and this was an urgent consideration, for during the last year and a half he had spent nearly £700. He must make up for it now by the most rigid economy now and then he thought of the future without, with panic. Sorry, He had been a fool to spend so much money on Mildred, but he knew that if it were to come again, he would act in the same way. It amused him sometimes to consider that his friends, because he had a face which did not express his feelings very vividly and a rather slow way of moving, looked upon him as a strong-minded, deliberate and cool person. They thought him reasonable and praised his common sense, but he knew that his placid expression was no more than a mask, assumed unconsciously which acted like the protective colouring of butterflies, and himself was astonished at the weakness of his will. It seemed to him that he was swayed by every light emotion, as though he were a leaf in the wind, and when passion seized him, he was powerless. He had no self-control. He merely seemed to possess it because it was indifferent. He was indifferent to many of the things which moved other people. He considered with some irony the philosophy which had developed for himself, for it had not been of much use to him in the conjuncture he had passed through, and he wondered whether thought, whether thought really helped a man in any of the critical affairs of life. It seemed to him rather that he was swayed by some power alien to and yet within himself, which urged him like the great wind of hell, which drove Paolo and Francesca ceaselessly on. He thought of what he was going to do, and when the time came to act, he was powerless in the grasp of instincts, emotions, he knew not what. He acted as though he were a machine driven by the two forces of his environment and his personality. His reason was someone looking on, observing the facts, but powerless to interfere. It was like those gods of Epicurus, who saw the doings of men from their Empyrean heights, and had no might to alter one smallest particle of what occurred.
All right, that's the chapter. That's the chapter. Thanks for listening to that. Have your say on the subreddit, and I'll see ya tomorrow.